Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and around the world on our Ruth Sheva Israel National News slash radio. And thanks for joining us. The news is coming fast and furious this week. There's just so much to talk about. Let's get right back into it. And, well, just on, on both sides, the Trump transition seems in full gear. Appointments are being made. Appointments are being criticized, as, uh, as it were. Uh, we have a big uh, week with the uh, some tributes to uh, Vice President Joe Biden in the Senate, which I thought was uh, noteworthy because Joe Biden also indicated that he might run for president in 2020. Uh, of course, he would be 78 years old at the time, but uh, hope springs eternal. And you know, a lot of Democrats are wistful in thinking that Joe Biden should have been the candidate in 2016. Too bad he was pushed aside because he would have been the working class white man's champion and probably, at least in many people's minds and many people's conjecture, would have bested Trump in some of those key states. But uh, as I said, as I've said before, there is, uh, of course, no way to know whatsoever about what might have been, what could have been. There is only what is. And right now, Donald Trump is putting together a cabinet, uh, albeit somewhat messily. Uh, in certain ways, but uh, certainly it is moving along. Uh, every day, more you know, signs of both uh, whether you think it is intentional or just sloppiness. You see signs that Trump has yet to kind of, uh, well, evolve himself into the president. A presidential figure. Now that could just be he wants to remain unpredictable. He wants to remain. Uh, he wants to remain Donald Trump. And I don't. You always have to go with what got you there, which is always a, which is not an original thought. Go with what got you there. But in a certain sense, and I'll just take last night for example. A. It's it's it is chuckle worthy, but you almost feel that the president of the United States, or when he becomes president of the United States, should not engage in every single fight that he needs to. I mean, there is a concept of called punching down, and I think that this was the case um, last night. Well, there was a union boss, uh, union shop steward Chuck Jones, who. Uh, went on CNN and talked about the fact that the carrier deal, this is the Indianapolis carrier deal to much fanfare last week. Donald Trump w walked in there and said we're saving 1,100 jobs or more than 1,100 jobs. In fact, this probably would not have happened had Mike Pence not been the governor because it was actually the government of Indiana that was saving the jobs. The federal government didn't put any money in here, but thankfully the optics were there. Thankfully he had the ability to do that. Um, two things you know, that – Chuck Jones, who was the union boss there, who wanted to save, of course, the jobs of his of his uh, members. Um, now, number one is that five hundred of those eleven hundred jobs were never going to move, and that's what he pointed out. So it's not really eleven hundred. The other thing is that Trump, at the time, which I also thought was kind of funny, got up there on the podium and says, "Well, I never really promised to saving the jobs here. I, I'm doing it anyway, but I never promised to do it." Uh, 
No, it was one of those things is, wow, this is the first time I can remember that he's not taking credit for something. But Chuck Jones says he took credit for things that he shouldn't have taken credit for. And that's not really the crux of the story. The real issue here with this story is that immediately, almost immediately on Twitter, Trump tweets Chuck Jones doing a terrible job. This is why jobs are moving out of the U.S. Now, this is a real head scratcher for a number of reasons. Okay. Number one is Donald Trump is clearly watching CNN uh, and glued to CNN and glued to whatever people are saying about him instead of – now, I understand you want to relax. I understand you want to – but – and certainly I think people in power should get news firsthand. They should only rely on people telling them what happened. But to be glued to the fact that a – guy, just a regular guy, just an average Joe or an average Chuck in this case, sitting in Indianapolis, giving an interview, saying that Donald Trump, you know, misled people on the number of jobs that were, that wasn't actually the language he used, but I don't want to use it here. But okay. So he said that Donald Trump was, you know, stretching the truth here. Big deal. Let it go. Does it really matter? But, of course, Trump has to attack him on Twitter, which just seems so bizarre. The president-elect of the United States put himself on the same level as a union shop steward. Now, that's called punching down. Is If we have some guy around the world who is going to criticize the president in some country out there, does the president of the United States need to respond to that? Does he need to respond to that on Twitter? Now, I understand this concept. Donald Trump is a counterpuncher. Donald Trump needs to respond to everything he doesn't let. But for real, I mean, this guy's just Chuck Jones. That's it. You know, walk away. Take your victory. Just walk away. Be gracious and say, hey, proud to save the jobs. You know, I think that's it. You can walk away with the victory. Take it. It's just, well, you know what? And then Trump yesterday says, well, I think I was very restrained. I'm very restrained on Twitter. That's what he gave an interview to the Today Show. I'm very restrained. Now, let's just say anybody who's following that Twitter feed, and I understand he's not president yet. So, But this is the transition period. This should be the transition period from campaign to president. And there is a difference between the – but anybody's following that Twitter feed is seeing some pretty strange behavior. Let's put it this way. I mean he is on Twitter sometimes, especially with the China-Taiwan kerfuffle. OK, let's just explain that for a second. OK, on China, Donald Trump goes ahead and meets with Taiwan. OK, Taiwan is – some would call it an independent country, but officially, according to the United States government, Taiwan is part of China. It's a province of China. That has been the policy since we had a rapprochement with China 40 years ago and established diplomatic relations. This is something that China is very insistent about. Now, you might like not like China. You might like China. It doesn't really matter, but that's the position of the United States government. The first time in 40 years – that the president or a United States official, high-ranking meets with a – I'm sorry, not meets with. takes a call from the president of Taiwan. And then he gets criticized for it because this was not – this was a huge break and a huge breach with diplomatic protocol. And 
Trump's response on Twitter is to criticize the U.S. government for selling arms to Taiwan. So he tells to, to Taiwan, I can't take a congratulatory phone call. Now, again, and I don't want to spend this time dissecting each tweet because I think it, that, that makes absolutely ridiculous. But when you think about it here, who's he criticizing? He's criticizing the United States government. He will be the United States government. He is, in fact, the United States government. You're criticizing – you're basically saying, well, I yeah. – well, uh, you know, how can you criticize me because the government, you know, th- those people go ahead and they sell arms to Taiwan. Well, it's you who send it. You have to own. There's a certain point in which he's going to have to own the government of the United States. He's got to own the executive branch. It's just a fact. You can't be the guy throwing bombs at yourself, essentially. And, you know, it's kind of carrying over to this Boeing Air Force One thing, which another just strange, off-the-cuff, Twitter-esque – I mean, it was on Twitter, but I'm saying – but and then afterward, he goes an interview and saying, well, Boeing, too much money. Number one, there's no contract yet. Okay, It might be $4 billion, it might not. Number two is this project is seven years out. So he's not even getting an Air Force One. So if he's nervous about having to not fly in his – I don't think they're going to let him fly in his own plane anyway if that's if that's the play here. But number two is it just it just seems absurd to start hashing these things out in 140 characters. Whether or not an Air Force – new Air Force One is needed because the current one is 30 years old, that really should be more of an expert question – and I'm willing as an American taxpayer to trust those entrusted with national security, with or, or sorry, with the president's security, with the president's security. I don't know that that needs to be hashed out on Twitter. So if you want to get the reputation for just going ahead and upsetting the apple cart each time and then trying to put all the apples back in the cart you know, staking out these negotiating positions, if you will. Well, it just it just doesn't seem. In fact, when you're, if you, the problem is, at least in a couple of weeks, they're his apples. He's got to own them. And perhaps the attitude here is, well, you know, I'm coming in to fix everything, and everything's broken, and I don't want responsibility for anything. Therefore, I'm going to have this attitude. Uh, that's going to be an interesting attitude because I will say, I mean, look, we all think Washington is broken as far as decision-making, etc., but the American government continues to run, and it continues to deliver. It continues to be – well, it might be inefficient, but it delivers a lot of services and delivers a – and certainly provides for the defense of this country in a very significant way. The one last point here on the non-presidential Trump here is that I thought at this point, finally, that he won the election, Trump was going to acknowledge at least take the opinion of his own now, now his own intelligence establishment that Russia was behind the hacking of the DNC emails. I, I think that's pretty much that's pretty much accepted at this point. Now it, it's this is not a media creation. This came from the intelligence community. And and do we think that it's not possible that the but Trump has really just rejected it wholesale and even gave a 
comment and saying that the intelligence community has been politicized. Well, these are the same intelligence – this is the same intelligence community that you're taking briefings from, or maybe not because some people say he's not going to the briefings. But at least they're providing information to your administration or will be providing information to your administration. So it's a little bit strange that you would go ahead and not – and kind of throw them under the bus like that. Okay, well, let's start with some of the more interesting um, events of the week, at least from a political perspective. As I said, you know, we are now moving forward. I think the biggest challenge here that for the Trump transition is not actually the cabinet picks because a lot of them, I'd say, are very good. From my perspective, is that people, even people who did not, who were not Trump supporters, uh, at least on the Republican side, can find a lot of good things in these cabinet picks. Um, some of them, like uh, Flynn and his son, well, little might be a little bit, uh, well, a little bit uh, unnerving to some, particularly uh, General Flynn's uh, son, Michael Flynn, was retweeting and all kinds of conspiracy things with this, but I don't want to go too much into that. Uh, he has since been tossed out of the transition, probably will not get an administration job. You also had Dr. Ben Carson being nominated to HUD secretary. Now, I can't help but thinking that you have gentlemen with no government experience, no management experience, taking on one of the most complex and largest federal bureaucracies dealing with public housing. Now, of course, the response was, which I love, which is the tweet from Mike Huckabee, Ben Carson is first HUD secretary who actually lived in government housing. Fancy Nancy Pelosi says he's not qualified. Is she racist or just dumb? Now, I happen to love that part because fancy Nancy Pelosi, that's that's excellent. I uh, haven't seen that one before. But the problem was, the problem is with this tweet is that it's not true. Ben Carson did actually actually did not live in public housing. And even if he did, he wouldn't be the first. Apparently, Alfonso Jackson, who was the HUD secretary under President George W. Bush, Bush 43, said he lived in public housing, but Ben Carson didn't. But to me, that's just not – that's just – the point here is, is that nominating a neurosurgeon to oversee public housing and – it just, it just seems – they're just it just seems very ill fit um, knowing Bill Carson from the uh, from the campaign trail why is he the one now yes he grew up poor and he was a striver but that's not really exactly what HUD is about um, it just almost seems that you pigeonhole somebody because they're African American and you say okay let him deal with the urban areas and deal with urban problems. Uh, we'll we'll see. This will be an interesting one um, as as we, as we go on. But yeah, of course, if the defense is and the talking points are that he lived in public housing, well, he didn't. Um, and as I said, HUD is a significant bureaucracy. It might be a bureaucracy that a lot of us don't like, but it's also the face of Republican outreach in many cases, or at least a Republican administration outreach to the inner city. And if Trump is serious about trying to go ahead and revive cities, this is going to be a very important job. Um, with regard to with regard to some of the other picks, so we've seen um, the Attorney General of Oklahoma has been nominating for EPA Commissioner, which is particularly noteworthy. 
since he has been a uh, which since he has been a uh, staunch foe of the EPA since uh, uh, Scott Pruitt is the Oklahoma Attorney General, strong friend of the oil and gas industry, that is likely to get a lot of people uh, in a tizzy who are pro-environmentalist. Uh, John F. Kelly, General, is Homeland Security Secretary, I think a great pick from what I understand, um, really. And uh, Trump seems to be leaning hard on the generals for that, as, a, as he did in appointing uh, or nominating, I should say, James Mattis as Defense Secretary. Of course, James Mattis will need a waiver because we do have this, I think, very important rule of civilian control of the military. And we want a g- former general to be out of office or out of the service for at least seven years. Now, maybe that should be shorter. That is debatable. But there will be a waiver needed. And we'll have to see. That waiver requires 60 votes, which requires some Democrats to support that. Uh, as we discussed, we have Steve Mnuchin for Treasury Secretary, Elaine Chow for Transportation Secretary, Tom Price, a foe of Obamacare for Health and Human Services Secretary, Wilbur Ross, Commerce Secretary, Betsy, Betty, Betsy DeVos, Education Secretary, fantastic pick for our, our you know, community that sends children to yeshivas. Uh, that could be a game changer in, in some ways. Nikki Haley for UN Ambassador. Mike Pompeo for CIA Director. Jeff Sessions, Attorney General. And that's uh, kind of it right now. As far as the big sweepstakes as Secretary of State, I mean, there are just a lot. The the universe of names has expanded tremendously. Um, those under consideration right now include John Bolton, Bob Corker, Rudy Giuliani, John Huntsman, Zalmay Khalilzad, who is the U.S. ambassador to Afghanistan and under George W. Bush, Joe Manchin, senator for West Virginia, David Petraeus, who, of course, uh, would be uniquely, incredibly qualified had he not been convicted of passing secret information to his mistress, um, kind of kills many of those allegations against Hillary Clinton, although we move on. Um, and Mitt Romney, still in the mix, although I have this feeling that Mitt Romney is just being hung out to dry and to embarrass. And Rex Torreson, who is the president and chief executive of ExxonMobil. Now, that, of course, would be an interesting pick, um, really getting somebody out of nowhere. Um, director of National Intelligence is still open. Interior Secretary is still open. Ag se- Agriculture Secretary is still open. Labor Secretary is still open. Energy Secretary is still open. Secretary of Veterans Affairs is still open. So there's a lot out there that's still open that can that need that needs to be filled right now. But what's really going to be difficult right now for the transition is figuring out the legal way for Trump to separate himself from the Trump Organization, to separate himself from his businesses, in order not to run afoul of the Constitution, essentially. Yes, he said there's no conflicts of interest for the president. That might be true. And I think that legally that probably is true, Um, although, you know, you never know who might test that. But especially – but some egregious conflicts of interest are certainly going to make themselves their way onto the front page of every paper. There continue to be distraction. But what is part of the Constitution – is the emoluments clause, hopefully I got that pronunciation correct, which says specifically in the Constitution that a official of the United States cannot accept gifts or titles or positions from the any foreign government. Now, 
the Jewish community actually got enmeshed in that this week um, in talking about it. The Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations is co-hosting a Hanukkah party together with the government of Azerbaijan at the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. Now, the Trump International Hotel is now frequently talked about as one of these con potential conflicts of interest. There are diplomats and people from around the world now booking to try and stay at that hotel, they say, to curry favor with the new administration. And in fact, if you think about a foreign government giving money or renting a room or paying money to the hotel, that money eventually finds its way to Donald Trump. There's no question about it. Now, can a foreign entity do that? Or I should say, can the president of the United States accept that money that eventually is going to go to him? Even if he's walled off, even if he's not managing it, the money does potentially go to him. And that becomes a problem vis-a-vis -vis flouting the, this clause in the Constitution. Now, there are going to be legal minds that are going to be far superior to mine who are going to figure this out. You're going to figure all this out, but I think that the question it becomes is, is it going to be enough to just kind of say, okay, I walked away from my business? And that is going to be a big issue that's going to dog him. And it doesn't seem that Donald Trump wants to go ahead and divest himself of the business. Um, he wants to cr create the situation where his children run the business. And I've heard this uh, as of this morning that it's not going to be – that Ivanka's also going to step away from her businesses and her involvement. It's just going to be the sons. But, you know, in and of itself, there's no question, I think. I mean, let, it, it kind of defies, uh, defies credulity to say we're not – we're, we're doing an event or we're not – we're staying in the Trump Hotel in Washington – and it's got nothing whatsoever to do with the fact that the president-elect of the United States owns the hotel and he might know we're making an event there. I mean, let's be honest here. As I said, the Conference of Presidents doing their thing there. I actually think it's not a bad idea. Who cares? I mean, like, like we think of it, you, know, you might not like Donald Trump. You might like Donald Trump. You might disagree with him. You might not disagree with him. Bottom line, he's going to be president. A lot of people should accept that. Uh, I think the one thing is that seems that the discussion doesn't seem to be Around that, it always it seems to be, at least in this case, with regard to this Hanukkah party, seems to be, well, we didn't really mean it. We didn't really do it. Um, Malcolm Holmline, you know, said essentially, well, we did it because it was the closest hotel to the White House and people come to the White House Hanukkah party. Now, there are closer hotels. Uh, there's no question about it. Anybody who's been to Washington knows um, that the Hey Adams right across the street, St. Regis right up the street. I mean, there's just... This is not the closest hotel. Now, I don't have a – as I said, I don't have a problem with doing it there, yet you're going to take heat for it. Uh, Rabbi Rick Jacobs of the Union for Reform Judaism said the decision is tone deaf at best, naked sycophancy at worst. I just wanted to say naked sycophancy on the air because I think it's a, a nice little line there, a nice little zinger. But – you're making the Hanukkah party at the Trump Hotel. He just became president. The likelihood is you would not have made that had he not won. So just own up to it um, and say this was a smart decision on our part, and I actually think it was. I mean, what's the big deal? Uh, back to the Taiwan call for a second, and I just wanted to throw this in there because it goes back to this theme of conflicts of interest and the lobbyists and the draining of the swamp and the whole thing, how influence is going to be peddled in Washington. And it might be a whole different way in which influence is peddled in Washington over the next four years. But 
Trump said, well, this was a spur-of-the-moment congratulatory phone call from the president of Taiwan, and therefore I took it. Uh, that, in fact, is not the case. Bob Dole, who was the lone supporter of Donald Trump, former Republican nominee, amongst former Republican nominees uh, in the election, is a lobbyist for the Taiwanese government. He set up the call. He's been paid $150,000, $140,000 over the course of the past couple of years to lobby for Taiwan and potentially change the policy. Uh, and this was, you know, this is not draining the swamp. Let's put it that way. I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to, it's not really much more than that, but it, you have to own up to the fact that Washington has a certain way of working and this is the way things happen sometimes. Uh, another point I think that's really noteworthy on this, and I think as we get, uh, more will come out as this race develops, is the Democratic side of things. We talked about the Democrats in the House last time. I want to talk about the Democratic race, the race for DNC chairman Keith Ellison, Republic, uh, sorry, de- representative of Minnesota, former Nation of Islam adherent and, and supporter of Louis Farrakhan, who has since repudiated it, or at least says he's repudiated it. Um, he was called this week by Haim Saban, a prominent Democratic donor, as an anti-Semite and anti-Israel. Finally, somebody is repudiating or of, of significant stature is basically saying it like it is. I can't understand how our own Senator Chuck Schumer was out there early on supporting Keith Ellison for DNC chair. People out there should be outraged. When I say our own, I meant New York Senator. Uh, For those of you out of state, I apologize for being so New York-centric. Okay, in closing, and as I said, there's always going to be so much to talk about this way, but in closing, I want to just talk about something that's really been bothering me that I think the nail has been hit in the head by... um, a Rosh Hashiva NYU, Rabbi Jeremy Weeder, and apparently it's been very controversial. But published in the Jersey Jewish Link, as well as the Bronx, Westchester, Connecticut Jewish Link, as well as on the YU Commentator website, um, is the a schmooze coming from Rabbi Jeremy Weeder that was given at YU that talks about, unfortunately, the resurgence, or maybe just I, maybe it's not a resurgence, maybe it's just the prevalence of racism in our midst, in our, in our Orthodox community, in the from community. And it, 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 to me, it's not about voting. It's not about who you voted for. And in fact, actually, I'm just going to read from, from the transcript of his, of his uh, schmooze because I think it's important. Uh, says Reverend Jeremy Weeder, I don't, care, I don't care for the purposes of this conversation who you voted for. I don't care who you think is better for the country, who is worse for the country. I don't care about those issues. I am, however, deeply disturbed that any students here should express such an attitude. That means racism. Unfortunately, racism runs deep in the Orthodox community. I can't tell you numbers, but I can tell you that it is a very, very real issue. But this is something that brings it very much to the surface. Racism itself is deeply, deeply immoral. I don't think I need to elaborate on that. And if I need to, I suspect the person on the other end is not going to be really engaged in a conversation with me anyway. However, I think that as Jews, it is particularly troubling to find those who express racism. There might not be another group. Maybe African-Americans in this country could give us a run for our money, but there probably hasn't been another group in the last 2,000 years that have suffered more because of what we call racist behavior. We might call it anti-Semitic, but that's what it is. It's racism, racist behavior of others, probably not a single group. We've done much better in this country than the African-Americans relatively, but for 1,600, 1,700 years before, our existence was miserable, both under Christendom and Islam, because we were singled out, because we were discriminated against because we are oppressed because of our religion. The idea that Jews should be at their core racist is repugnant. I don't really need to say much more. 
there is a lot of racism that has come to the fore overall in our society because of this election. I'm not going to apportion blame. It doesn't really matter. Well, some, some of it, it obviously does matter where it comes from, but not for purposes of this discussion. It pains me that the degree to which racism has and, and when I mean racism, I mean defining people purely by the labels that they wear or you know who not not who they are but what they are and it's there's no other the word that just comes to mind is just pernicious and it is an infection and it continues to affect our society in the way we we should not be those we should not be people who embrace racism uh whether it's against african americans latinos mexicans muslims arabs or non-muslim arabs of any kind and you know part of it carries over from israel um where there are some reasons uh you know of security wise where that comes about but it's wrong and it's wrong and it should not be part of our politics should not be part of the republican party and it's deeply deeply disturbing so on that note that's another week of spin class here in the books stay tuned for jew in the city speaks here on the with allison josephs here on the nachum segal network see you next week